How's everybody doing? Good. So I was in the nursery. Sometimes after the nine, I, I kind of like go escape back in the nursery. And um, I'm back there just kind of sitting there chilling. And there was uh, a young couple came in and their son was just kind of like having a hard time when they were walking out. So I was like, oh, I'll distract him. And so I went in there and I was distracting him and I didn't realize my microphone was still on. And, and so Steve Jensen ran back there and was like, hey, dude, your mic's on. Because I was like doing like the whole like baby talk and like... <laughs> all this junk. And so I was just wondering if people were hanging out in here as I'm in there and they're just like, what, what is this? So uh, it was probably very strange. So at least I wasn't like using the bathroom or something. That would have been really, really bad. Um, okay. Hey, we've been working on the book of Daniel for a long time. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If you haven't been with us in a while, it's, it's totally fine. We're wrapping up uh, the very end of it. Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Ezekiel. If you haven't been with us, this has probably been one of my favorite books that I've ever taught. I, have, I, I can't remember a time when I personally got more out of a book of the Bible than I have from the book of Daniel. It's been really relevant and it's been really pertinent to our times and, and just the fact that it was written so long ago and all the things line up so perfectly. And if you haven't been with us, it's been a great book of the Bible for skeptics. And I don't mean skeptical like, like there's something wrong with you or that we're better than anyone or anything like that. People who struggle with their faith, people who are extremely logical and, and they're grounded in history and they're grounded in, in uh, science and genealogy and these things. Sometimes they struggle with the Bible, but the more we study Daniel, the more we see just how spot on it is. In fact, chapter 11, if you weren't with us, if you're just a casual reader of the Bible and you're reading chapter 11, it's just a history lesson. It's almost in just really, really minute details about how the Persian army was conquered by the Greek empire and, and how the Greek empire split up into four different facets and the Romans and all this history. But what's fascinating is all that was written 450 years before any of it took place. And so there are all these prophecies that now have become history. And so if one is skeptical, you can read Daniel chapter 11 and you're like, wow, there's something to this. It lines up perfectly with Greek history and Persian history. And so there's also a lot of prophecies in Daniel that have not happened yet. And that's what we're going to talk about today. At the end of chapter 11, it goes into the last seven years of, of human history as we know it that has not taken place yet. And those are the seven years of tribulation when the Antichrist rises up and has complete control over the world for seven years. That's how we finished off chapter 11. And that goes right into chapter 12. So we talked about from chapter 11 this, that when we read Daniel and when we read the book of Revelation, they're kind of sister books, if you will, they don't only give us prophecy of things that have already happened and things that are going to happen that haven't happened yet. It teaches us about the nature of God, how God operates, how he loves, how he's gracious, how he's the perfect husband, that metaphor, and all these different things about God that just show you how he works, okay? So in chapter 12, we're gonna talk about this. It's gonna get a little bit deep at the end. As we're closing out kind of Daniel's life and his contribution to the word of God, an angel talks about his destiny, Daniel's destiny. So today we're going to reflect on ourselves and essentially ask ourselves, how are we going to finish out our time on earth? How will we wrap up the, the time and the energy and the finances and, and the uh, affluence and influence that God has trusted us with? What are we going to do with that? And how are we going to finish out this life? Okay. So I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this. Everyone doing okay? Again, no pop tires or broken ankles or no one's gotten stoned out in the parking lot yet. There's good stoning stones out there. So I shouldn't have said that. That made no sense to him. Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, those rocks are like this, right? I mean, okay. Anyway, let's pray. Uh, 
Let me pray. You guys pray for me, because obviously um, I'm prone to say stupid things. So pray for me. I'm going to pray for the service, and uh, we'll see what happens, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Um, thank you, God, for everyone in this room. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who carved out a piece of their weekend, the Lord, to, to hear your word and to worship and to study and to ask ourselves hard questions. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that we come in here with open eyes, open ears, open minds, that we can absorb what your word has for us today. Father, we also pray for every single church in our city, God. Thank you, Lord, for the, um, the big youth convention thing that just happened over at New Vision, Lord, and that all these churches can get together and worship together, God. And thank you for our students that went over there. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to bring us together, Lord. Continue to break down the walls of our denominations and our different kind of groups that we're in, Lord, and just help us, Lord, advance your kingdom. Father, we love you, we lift you up, and we praise you, God. And we just pray that all this time that we, we use to study your word, God, that it's accurate, and, uh, and that it glorifies you and, and that everything we do, God, just points up to you. We love you, Father. Be with me today and be with everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 12. It's a short chapter. If you haven't been with us, uh, all of chapter 11 and chapter 12 are an angel speaking to Daniel, who's at the twilight of his life. He's in his late 80s, and uh, he's speaking to Daniel, finishing up this prophecy, okay? Here we go, chapter 12. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt." Those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret, seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about, and knowledge will increase. Now, if you haven't been with us for a while, a couple of chapters ago, we talked a lot about angelic influence over empires and over different groups of people. And we've talked about the angel Michael a couple of times. And a couple of chapters ago, Daniel alludes to the fact that this angel Michael that a lot of people have heard about, the archangel Michael, was specifically set aside to protect the Jewish people. Now, it, it, it kind of alludes to that more in verse 1. Now, we've seen angelic involvement for the Jews in uh, Joshua 5, 2 Kings chapter 6, Isaiah 37. We see it in Revelation 12, a time that hasn't happened yet, but how Michael will be sent, it mentions him by name, to protect the Jewish people. So, it's safe to say that Michael has a special kind of mission that involves the Jewish people. Now, chapter 12 is talking about a window of about seven years, most of it, Okay. And in this time of seven years, the last seven years of human existence, how we know it right now, this angel says it's going to be a time of distress that's been unparalleled. There's never been anything like it. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, 21, showing that this is a time that has not happened yet, that it is coming in the future, and it will be the time of the great tribulation, and it will be in the last days, okay? So the luxuries that we have the comforts we have, the way of life that we have right now, it's going to go away in the last section, the last three and a half years of that seven years. So even though a lot of things are changed, they're going to change. There's going to be a lot of persecution. There's going to be a lot of stress, distress, bad stuff that happens. With the help of the angel Mark, Michael and the grace of God, a remnant of Jewish believers will persevere through that. 
The reason why it's important, and God doesn't love Jewish people more than he loves you and I, but he made a promise to them, a promise to Abraham, and then he made a promise in Jeremiah 31 that the Jewish people will never be wiped off the face of the planet until he comes back. And so we've seen that the Holocaust could not wipe out the Jews. We've seen that all the persecution, if you look at Israel on a map and all these large countries around it that are hostile, trying to shove them into the sea, they're never able to do that. Even with the last run of persecution against the Jews, there's going to be a remnant, a small amount of Jewish believers that are going to make it through that seven years. The ones that are going to make it through that seven years, the angel says, are the Jews whose names are written in the book. Now, this is the book of life. If you go into Exodus chapter 32, it mentions the book of life. If you go into Revelation chapter 20, it mentions the book of life. Essentially, there's going to be this book. I hope it's a very, very big book that's going to have the name of all the people who are saved. So up until this point in the chapter, it seems like we're just talking about the Jews. So we're kind of like, hey, what about us? You know, it's just talking about the Jews. Now, up to that point, it is. It's focusing on the people of Daniel. The angel wants to reassure Daniel that his people are going to be preserved. But then he gets to all of us. When he starts talking about the resurrection of believers, that's going to apply to all of us, right? All of us are going to be resurrected. Now, what a lot of people don't know is there are two resurrections. One of the interesting things that we're going to talk about today is this. There's two resurrections. After the seven years of tribulation... After God has poured out his wrath on evil, I don't believe Christians will see that. There'll be this remnant of Jews, but God's going to pour out his anger on the evil earth right before he comes back, right? And after these events have taken place, the first resurrection takes place. The first resurrection takes place right before the thousand, years, thousand year reign. Now, if you haven't been here with us, what that is, it's pretty simple, is that after Jesus comes back, he sets up shop on planet earth. He establishes his kingdom. And for a thousand years, it is just like the Garden of Eden, if you want to imagine it that way. There's harmony, there's peace, there's no rebellion, there's no death. And so the world is going to get heavily repopulated during this thousand years. And during that thousand years, the first resurrection that happens before that is going to be the martyrs. Anyone who has died for Jesus' name, they are going to be resurrected first, and they're going to help Jesus rule over this repopulated earth. Now, again, that doesn't mean that Jesus loves martyrs any more than he loves you and I, but because of the suffering they had to go through in this life, he's going to give them a special reward for a thousand years. Now, that sounds crazy, Corey, right? Where do you get that from? I get it from the Bible. So, it says in Revelation 20, I saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands, the mark of the beast. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. So this first resurrection will probably not be anyone in this room unless you are killed for Jesus Christ's name in this life. It probably won't be any of us. So, but during this first resurrection, these people lead over this repopulated earth. It goes on to say, the rest of the dead, which is probably going to be everyone in this room, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The first resurrection happened before that. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. It says the second death has no power over them, and they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's pretty fascinating stuff. 
In verse three, the angel talks more about this. He says, blessed are these people. They're gonna shine like the stars forever and ever, that they are just gonna be so bright. And the angel of God is talking about the honor that God is going to give these individuals who sacrificed everything, including their life, that they stood strong for Christ, even under the most uh, uh, immense persecution. Now, I don't recommend you go back and look at this footage or even the images. They're very, very grotesque. But just in the last couple of years, when ISIS is beheading these Christians on the beaches of Libya and all these different areas where they line up 150 Christians and saw their heads off, those men and women who suffer like that for Christ will be risen first and they will receive a reward if they stood strong for him. But look, even if we're not physically persecuted like that, multiple times in the gospels and really all throughout the entire Bible, it says that God honors what we do for him. So even if we're not physically persecuted, He honors our humility. He honors our hard work. He honors our compassion. He honors our obedience. He is not um, uh, stingy with giving us rewards. He's very quick to honor us if we honor him. And so Daniel has done this, right? And he's received all of the information almost that he's ever going to receive, right? As far as prophecies that we know of. And the angel says, take everything we've told you, keep it safe, seal it up. And that's not so it can be secret. It's not so Daniel can just walk around and not let anyone read it. He was supposed to protect it so people could read it. So future generations, every generation that's come after Daniel, they've read that book of the Bible and they've received clarity and they've received insight. And especially as the history unfolded, imagine how many people came to know the true God because of the prophecies of Daniel unfolding. And what's interesting about the book of Daniel is the more and more we go over time, the more and more people will be able to decipher and comprehend it even better. My daughters will understand Daniel better than me because they will see these things unfold. My grandchildren, if you know, the Lord doesn't come back before then, as time goes on, they will understand it more and more and more. And what this angel says is this, as time goes on, knowledge will increase. Now, a lot of people believe that means uh, that that's like the rise of atheism or the rise of elitism or the rise of academics. And that's not necessarily what it's talking about. What the angel is saying to Daniel is, is times get more and more turbulent. Listen, as the world gets nuttier and crazier, the more that young people are seeing that like, wow, the economic systems don't work. Wow, the political systems don't work. These relational systems don't work. These sexual parameters don't work. The more and more they see that the world is not producing the fruit that they would like to see, the more and more people are going to become knowledgeable of this book. They're going to run to the Bible and they're going to start to find the answers that they've always been looking for. Specifically, they're going to find them in Daniel. They're going to find them in the works of John, which is one of the gospels. He wrote several different uh, books of the Bible and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so they're going to find these answers. They're going to see these prophecies roll out. And the truth is just going to become more and more clear as time goes on. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've heard me rant and rave about this. I believe this book is inerrant, which means I believe there are no contradictions. I believe it is absolutely solid. And the accuracy that this Bible talks about is uncanny. And whenever there is criticism, whenever there's criticism about the validity of this this book, it usually, almost always, comes from a place of ignorance. So whenever someone says to you, man, there's all these contradictions, there's all these problems with the Bible, so you've read it cover to cover, well, no. See, and that's usually the case. And with some study and some research and some time put into this, we see that this Bible is very rock solid and there will come a time, and I'm kind of convinced that we're, we're, we're getting into that, that it has already reached us, 
where many people will start to dig back into the word of God, the more that they find more archeological discoveries. In fact, someone just told me that they found uh, the last house of uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, that they just unearthed this under a parking lot. And so more and more stuff is being excavated and being found to where more and more evidence is given to us. And so as times get turbulent, people are gonna turn to this and they're gonna find answers. Next part, you guys are still with me, right? Okay. Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. One of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long until the end of these extraordinary things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He raised both hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all of these things will be completed. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? Now, if you haven't been with us for a while, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are taking place at the bank of the Tigris River. This would be in modern-day Iraq, okay? So he's standing at the bank of the Tigris River, Daniel. We don't know if he was there for vacation. We don't know if he was there for work. It's, it's irrelevant. But he's standing there, and he has this vision of an angel, this angel that's been talking to him. Sometime in the course of this vision, he looks up, and there's two more angels. There's one standing on the bank next to him. There's one across the, the river on the other side. And then one is hovering above the waters. So one of the angels on the bank asks the angel hovering above the waters, Hey, all these things you're telling Daniel, how long are they going to last? When is the end of these things, these, all these extraordinary events? So the angel hovering over the water, what he does is he lifts both hands and he swears to God that these things will happen for a time, times, and half of a time. Now, the reason he lifted both hands, again, when you're casually reading it, you just think he's, you know, just doing this. In Jewish culture, they would always raise one hand and swear an oath. We do that in American culture too. If you're ever on jury duty or if you're ever subpoenaed or something, you put your hand on the Bible, you raise your hand, and, you know, I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. It was essentially like that, except the angel raised both, which showed that it was doubly important, if you will, that the impact was very, very significant. Now, this time that he's talking about was mentioned in Daniel 7, and it was mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. And the time he's referring to, the time, times, and half of a time, are three and a half years. That's half of the seven years of tribulation, okay? So the second half of the seven years of tribulation is this time that the angel is speaking of. And during that time, the seven years, the Antichrist is gonna have complete control over most of the world, right? He's gonna be the most powerful guy in the entire world. And the first three and a half years of that time, it's gonna be peaceful, in fact, he's going to write up or be in charge of or implement some kind of treaty with people and the Jews, Israel. And he's going to bring peace to the Middle East, right? Which has never been done before, ever in the history of mankind. So he's going to bring peace in this area. Now he's going to uphold that treaty for three and a half years. And then in the middle of the treaty, not only is he going to break the peace treaty with Israel and the Jews, he's going to viciously attack anyone who has not taken the mark of the beast. 
Now, we don't know what the mark of the beast is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be a computer chip or if it's going to be, we don't know. People speculate and argue. We just don't know. But whatever this mark is, the people who are not taking it are going to be the Jews and Christians. So what he's going to do is he's going to launch a very, very uh, hard campaign against Jews and Christians, and he will do that for three and a half years. Now, this is what I believe, and I believe I can pull it from the Bible and get evidence for this. I believe that in that time, a lot of people will come to know who Christ is. The great second century leader, Tertullian, he led during the second century as one of the great church fathers, right? Just a generation or two after the apostles, the the disciples. Tertullian said this, and I only got half the quote. He said, the more you mow us down, the quicker we grow. He's referring to Christianity. And he said, the blood of Christians is seed, He was referring to the time when the Romans, under guys like Marcus Aurelius and other Roman emperors like that, were viciously killing Christians. The more they killed Christians, the more and more the Christian faith grew. This will happen again towards the end of time. And it says in verse 7 that God will break the power of the holy people. What that means is it's specifically talking about the Jews, but I believe it's talking about non-believers as well that he will put this pressure, this intensity on the Jewish people that many of them will crack under that pressure and they will give their life to Christ. That's an act of grace. That's an act of love that he's disciplining them. He's putting them through these rough times, but that will awaken so many Jewish people and it will awaken so many non-believers and they will give their life to Christ. I believe that fulfills what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. When they asked him when he's going to come back, he said, once everyone has had the opportunity to accept the truth or deny it, then I will come back. And I believe right at the end, there's going to be a huge push for that. And so Daniel's hearing all this, right? And he's a smart guy. If you haven't been with us, in the Bible, Solomon is mentioned to be the wisest man in the Bible. David, probably the most courageous, but the smartest, the most intelligent person that the Bible talks about is Daniel. He was highly educated, highly intelligent. So when he says he doesn't understand, it's not that he can't understand what the angel's saying. He couldn't comprehend how these things were going to fall in place. So what Daniel had to do is he just had to trust God and he had to trust that God was sovereign, that he was in control. Remember, that's the thesis for all the book of Daniel. God is sovereign. God is in control. And because he had to fall back on that because the details aren't there. Not everything was laid out exactly the way that Daniel wanted it to be laid out. But as these prophecies unfold, as the time draws near, it's going to become more and more clear to us. Okay? Last part. The angel said to Daniel, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. From the time of daily sacrifices abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. The one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days is blessed. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, then rise to your destiny at the end of these days. Essentially what's happening in these last couple of passages, this angel and Daniel are talking, and the angel is essentially saying to Daniel, you've done everything we've called you to do. You've fulfilled all the things. He's at the end of his life. 
He's reaching kind of the, the end. This is a guy who has been delivered from a lion's den. This is a guy who's seen his friends get delivered from a fiery furnace. This is a guy who saw the handwriting of God on a wall. This is a guy who has, who has made it through the Babylonians and the Persians and just seen all of this crazy stuff. And he's reaching the end of his life. And the angel's like, good job. You've, you've wrapped up everything that we've wanted you to do. And so he says, seal these things up. They'll be released at the appropriate time. And like Daniel, we just need to, again, rest in the assurance that God knows what he's doing. So he's got all this on his mind now, right? All these crazy things are gonna happen. And he just needed to rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. So one of the things that, that uh, the angel tells Daniel, the angel says that in the last days, that people who have open minds, it says wise people will understand. If people seek out the truth, if they have open minds, if they're looking for the, the, the truth, they will be purified, they will be cleansed, they will be refined. Again, that's where I think a lot of people will come to know Christ as long as they're open-minded. But on the other hand, it says that selfish, arrogant, and unteachable people will not understand. It says the wicked will continue to be wicked and they will not see that the world is falling apart. I'm flabbergasted when I talk to people sometimes and it's like, man, things are a lot better now than they were 20 years ago. And I'm like, how do you gather that? With the amount of abuse, there's more slaves right now on planet earth than we've ever had. There's more slavery, there's more oppression, there's more hatred, there's more malice, there's more war, there's more famine. It is getting worse and worse and worse. But some people who are just refuse to look, people who refuse to look at the truth, they will not see this. They will not see that humanity is falling deeper and deeper into depravity. And again, Jesus dealt with this and he talked about this in Matthew chapter 13. And so the angel goes on and he tells Daniel this. He says, Daniel, I've told you before about an abomination that causes desolation. If you haven't been with us, there's a figure that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about him several times, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek leader. He was one of the four generals that took over the Greek empire after Alexander the Great died, okay? This guy was a prototype. He ran Syria. He was a prototype for the Antichrist. He was one of the, 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 the individuals that you can look at the life of Antiochus and the Antichrist is gonna act very, very similar to that. One of the things that Antiochus did, we talked about this in chapters nine and 11, is he went into Jerusalem from Syria, went into Jerusalem and he set up a statue of Zeus in the middle of the Jewish temple, the synagogue. And he even called it the temple of Zeus Olympus. And he forced the Jewish people to worship Zeus or they had to be kicked out of the temple. Now, the Antichrist is going to do something similar, but we know that in the New Testament that, that God doesn't reside in a temple. God, there's no significance to buildings in the New Testament. What is the temple? We are. And so the desolation, the desecration of the temple that happens in the Antichrist time is he's going to set up some kind of idol, which is going to be himself, and he's going to make this image. It says that in Revelation. He's going to make people worship it. And if they don't worship him in this image, he's going to slaughter people who don't. He's going to destroy God's temple, which is his people. And what that's inevitably going to do is that's going to push Jesus over the edge and he's going to reinsert himself back into this physically. He's going to come back to earth and he's going to deal with the Antichrist. Now, something that's confusing, most of this is pretty easy to follow, What's confusing is this 1,290 days and 1,335 day thing. If you add up three and a half years, right? 42 months at 30 days apiece, it adds up to 1,260. 
So there's these extra 30 days, and then there's an extra 45 days added onto that, and you're kind of like, what the heck is that? Now, we don't know for sure what that is. No one knows. People tell you they don't know. Matthew 25 mentions, though, that there is going to be a time after Jesus comes back when he will deal with evil, right? He will deal with the people, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Some people believe that that's referring to that extra 30 days and then that extra 45 days. The other view to that is that all these numbers are just figurative. They don't really mean anything. It just, it's symbolic of there's going to be this time when we're going to have to put up with persecution. There's going to be this time when God is going to judge things. And so some people just see it as purely symbolic, which is a possibility. If you remember when we talked about the 70 weeks a couple of chapters ago, that wasn't really talking about 70 weeks. It was talking about 490 years. So it could be some kind of metaphor. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. It's been interesting the whole time, but this part's really interesting to me. The angel says this to Daniel, the aging prophet that has seen everything. He says, go on your way to the end. You're going to rest, and then you're going to rise to your destiny at the end of days. This is fascinating to me. A, it makes clear that all the things that this angel is telling Daniel is about the future. But what he's saying is, Daniel, you're going to die. You're going to rest for a little bit. And the next time I see you, it's going to be when you're receiving your reward from God. Isn't that cool? So we're going to be resurrected at the same time that Daniel is, the second resurrection, because he wasn't a martyr. So we're going to be resurrected. You're going to think this is super cheesy. As you're waiting in line to be judged by Christ, the guy behind you could be Daniel. Isn't that cool? I'd be like, hey, man, I, I taught your book. You know, like, <laughs> uh, it's just kind of cool. So when Daniel's resurrected, this is what he's going to see. Use your imagination with me. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. This is what Daniel's going to see at the second resurrection. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. It goes on to say this. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the book. Now look, when you study astrophysicism, because I know we all do, right? When you study astrophysics, astrophysicists believe this. There's the Big Bang, right? Which I know we don't like to talk about science in church, but do you know what the Big Bang is? It's a massive expansion of light, instantaneous burst of light. When people are afraid of science, I say, well, read me Genesis 1. What is the first thing God commands? Let there be light. It's a Big Bang. So anyways, there's this massive expansion of light, and there's the universe, okay? What astrophysicists believe is they believe that the universe will have a life cycle. And at the end of this life cycle, the universe will go and collapse into nothing, utter nothingness, and then re-expand again. So if you go to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, you see the expansion of the universe. When you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, you see the universe collapse, and then it says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So all the things that astrophysicists are just now discovering, the Bible has said for a really, really long time. And it's really fascinating to read that. And Revelation chapter uh, uh, 20, verse 11 and 12 blows my mind. Think of everything that God has created fleeing his presence. It disappears. There's nothing left. The universe, the solar system, the earth is when everything is gone, disappears. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's white. I don't know if it's black. I don't know if it's a void. I don't know. But it mentions this in 2 Peter 3.10 as well. And the only thing that remains is God on his throne, the book of life, 
the book of our individual lives and us. And we stand before the throne and we're going to be judged by the righteous judge, which is Jesus Christ. So the evidence that he's going to use, he's going to use two different books. He's going to use first the book of life. This is the one that you really want your name in. And so when you walk up and he's just like, Corey Trimble, you're like, yeah. So you're in that book. That's the book that has always existed. Try to wrap your head around that too. It's existed before any of us did. It shows that God has foreknowledge of where everyone's going to go. It shows that he has sovereignty. And when we get up there, he will look, find our name, and we will either go to eternal life or go to eternal death. Now, the second book is a little bit different. The book of our lives contains the actions of the individual. We will all have a book and he will sit down and he will look at what you did with what he gave you. How much of a steward you will. Most people agree that we will have rewards in heaven. I don't know what that looks like. You know, my condo's bigger than so-and-so's or I don't know what that looks like in heaven, but there are rewards that we will get. And also some people believe that there will be greater degrees of punishment in hell based on what is written in that book. That's also mentioned in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. And so the names that are not found in the book of life, then one that determines that you go to heaven, the names not found in that will experience what the Bible calls the second death. Now, the second death, the first death is pretty, uh, it's pretty obvious. It's when we die, this body dies. When we're resurrected to be judged by Christ, we're given a new body. And that new body will either go again to heaven eternally or to hell. And the second death is not actually a death at all. We don't die in hell. No one dies in hell. You're eternally tormented forever. Now, if it's literal lake and fire, if it's literal burning sulfur, like some people believe, I believe it is literal, but if you don't, it's kind of irrelevant. The point is this, without God, an existence without God naturally gravitates towards chaos, destruction, pain, and torment. You don't have to have Satan to have hell. Just leave people to their own devices without God, and you'll have hell. We saw that when Hurricane Katrina happened, it hit, and we put 50,000 people in that big dome in New Orleans with no law and no order. We saw what happened. Rape, pillage, plunder, people getting murdered, people getting uh, uh, abused. All these horrible things happen when people are left to their own devices, and God is not a part of the equation. We destroy ourselves pretty well. That's what happens to people that don't experience eternity in heaven. And that brings this up. At the end, we've been studying Daniel ever since he was a kid, right? If you've been with us, got kidnapped when he was about 12 from the Babylonians, shipped off to Babylon. We we saw him grow up. We saw the different curveballs thrown his way in life. We can't make the excuse that, well, I didn't have parents, neither did Daniel. He was kidnapped as a kid, robbed from his family. We can't say that, you know, well, we didn't have money. He didn't have it either. He was a refugee. And so we see all these things. And when we look at Daniel's life and when we kind of close the book on Daniel and this angel says, I'll see you again when you're resurrected. We don't believe in karma at this church. We don't believe in the samsara, the wheel of life. We don't believe in reincarnation because those things aren't real. And so the other side of this is, is we have to accept the fact that we have one shot. And what the Bible says is this, is that we are migrants, that this life is a temporary time where we go from point A to point B, from birth to death, and we get one shot. And everything we do between those two points, birth and death, resonates forever. Everything we do, every choice we make, we have one shot at life. 
So we have to be honest and we have to ask ourselves some questions. The first one is this, where does our time go? Corey, I don't have time to read my Bible. I would like to get on some of your iPhones, go to the settings where it tells me how much time you've been on Facebook. I'd like to see how much time you're on Instagram. I'd like to see how much time you're surfing the web. I'd like to just see. You should do that as an exercise of humility. I did it actually like two weeks ago. I didn't know you could do that on your phone. You go to your apps and it tells you how much time you've spent on each app. And it's very sobering. Wow. So when I make the excuse that I can't spend time with my kids, I'm doing that. Where does your time go? Where does your time go? When people make the excuses, how much time is wasted? Guys, do you know that your kids are only gonna be kids once? Do you know that the wasted time that you're not spending with your spouse, that's what results in the fractured relationships that we have. The time that you're not spending in prayer and communing with God, where is your time going? Honestly, where is it going? What are your core values? At the end of the day, what do you really find important? What do you really find important? If you look at where your money goes, if you look at where your energy goes, if you look at where your time goes, that's typically how you can find out what your core values are. Corey, I value God more than anything. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you getting involved? Why aren't you serving? Why aren't you teaching? Why aren't you leading? I love my wife more than anything. And why do you keep cheating on her? I love my kids more than anything. Then why don't you clock out at six and go home and spend time with them? Where's your time going? What is your core values? What do you value? What have we invested in? What have we poured ourselves into? We wonder why we get such a little return out of life. It's because we haven't invested anything in it. We wonder why we never hear God. It's because we've never invested in quality time. We wouldn't even know what God sounded like if he spoke because we haven't invested. We haven't poured into all you older people in the room, I'm gonna be mean for a second. We keep complaining about these entitled 20-somethings. They're a product of you. We haven't invested. We haven't invested. If I'm 36, I need to be pouring into a 26-year-old. If you're 56, you need to be pouring into the 30-somethings and the young families in here. What do you invest in? At the end of your life, you're gonna say, man, I got this super big house and this super nice car. I've never met someone on their deathbed, and I've met a lot. I've never met someone on their deathbed that says, man, I wish I would have put more hours in at the office. Never met that person. I don't think I ever will. They say, wish, wish I would have spent more time with my kids. Wish I would have invested more in my marriage. Wish I, more, wish I would have invested more in my city. Invested more in the nonprofits. Invested more in my time with God and study. And so who have you impacted? As we go through this journey of life, isn't it sad to say that some of us will never impact anybody? You'll never reach out and, and help that person that's struggling. And not for your glory. This isn't so people can pat you on the back. We don't do it for that. We impact others because we care about the kingdom, because we care about humanity, because we're in this together. We're linked. Who have you impacted? What are your goals? What do you care about? Is it just the, man, and look, guys, I'm not against success. Man, I celebrate people's successes. I was back talking to my friend Sebastian in the back, just graduated. I'm like, that's awesome, man. We celebrate success. That's good. But at the end of it, what are your goals? What drives you? What makes you wake up in the morning? What are your goals? 
You're gonna think I'm so lame. The two biggest goals I had when I set out to do this church, I'm talking about personal goals. You know, of course I wanted to grow the kingdom of God, but my personal goals were this. I just wanna be able to do this as a full-time job and I wanna make enough so my wife can stay at home with our kids. Those were my big goals. I just wanna be able to do this all the time and I want my wife to be able to pour into our kids. That was it. And so people, and I don't mean this arrogantly at all, but after the book came out, you know, like people have interviewed Josh and I a lot and they'll ask that question, man, what's your greatest success? And I'll say that I get to do this for a living and that my wife stays at home with my kids. My biggest goals. And they're always kind of like, what, that's it? Yeah, that's it. What are your goals? What's your work ethic? The Christian should never be known as the lazy person at the job. You know why? Not because you're trying to impress your coworkers or your boss, because the Bible says we work unto the Lord. So everything we do, God is watching. And we don't do it so people can, again, so people can give us accolades or pat us on the back or give us promotions or make more money. Those things are fine and good. And I know we need affirmation, I get it. But ultimately, that's not why we work hard. We work hard because the Lord asks us to work hard. We get one shot, guys. Do you want to go through this life being known as lazy and late and inconsistent? We have one shot, one, one. And so the, the, the next thing is this, do we dream? Do we still think crazy thoughts? Do we still see a wall and say, I think I can climb that? Do we still have crazy thoughts? The first thing that God is ever known for in the Bible is what? It's a creator. The first thing that God has ever identified as in the entire Bible is an artist, a painter, a sculptor. Look, look what it says. It says that he started with this blank canvas, darkness, and he puts some light here and he separates this here so the sun can beat down on the earth and uh, photosynthesis can happen and all these colors rise up out of this sculpture that is our planet earth and all these beautiful things that God has done in the spirit that created all those things and hovered over the waters and made this beautiful universe, that spirit lives in us. Therefore, we should create. We should write books. We should sing new songs. We should paint paintings. We should build businesses. We should, we should roll down the windows and sing loud songs with our kids in the car. We should dream. We should think crazy thoughts because God has wired us to do so. And who do you love? Who do I love? I say I love God more than anything. I say that I love my wife and my kids more than anything. But sometimes if, I'm, if I objectively step away from myself, I really love me more than anyone. And the Bible says that towards the end of time, people will become lovers of self. The word for 2013, the word of the year by Webster's Dictionary was selfie. Selfie. The word of the year, just to show the degradation of human society, the word of the year for 2014 was vape. That's the best we can come up with as a people. Selfie and vape. We put on our iPod and we walk around the grocery store so no one will talk to us. We shut everyone out and we make our own playlists. We post pictures thinking that everyone cares. I ate a waffle this morning. Staggering, right? <laughs> and so what we've done 
And it's not because we're bad people, but somewhere along the lines, we started thinking that the universe revolved around us. It doesn't. It revolves around him. It revolves around him. Who do we love? Who do we love? Because what we have to understand, guys, is that forever is a long time. Forever is a If we have one shot, you're more apt. You're more apt to do more if you understand that eternity is a long time. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us in this room, I wasn't a believer until I was almost 23. And the older I get, the younger that looks. But I was almost 23 years old, squandered the first 23 years of my life. But look, if you're in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s, if you still have breath in your lungs, it is never too late. It is never too late. Not only to receive the grace and forgiveness of God, it's never too late to turn around and do something phenomenal for the kingdom. You remember when we studied Nebuchadnezzar? A guy that was arrogant and squandered and killed a lot of people. And at the very end of his life, he turned around, and I believe I'll see that guy in heaven one day. And he finished well. At the twilight of his life, at the very end, if you remember when we studied it, almost immediately after he gave his life to God, it was just a couple of months later, he died. And our ultimate hope is this. Every single one of you, all of us in this room, are one day going to stand in front of the great judge as he sits on his throne and he's going to crack open the book, right? The book of Corey Trimble. He's going to crack it open. And now maybe it's because I have dad issues. And maybe it's because I have this fractured relationship. I don't know. Maybe it's my insecurities. But above the streets of gold, above the pearly gates, above the foundations of Jasper and Topaz and all the other beautiful things, above hanging out with Daniel and high-fiving the Apostle Paul and running around with David and all these other things that I want to do when I get to heaven. The thing I want more than anything is I just want Christ to look at me and say, Corey, good job. Well done. Well done. The only thing I want, and it comes from a place of insecurity because of my family life, is I just want my heavenly father to look at me and say, well done, well done. And above all things, guys, above the accolades of people, above the success of this world, above the streets of gold and the pearly gates and all the benefits in heaven, above all those things, we should want more than anything to look at our creator and have him say, you finished really well. That's what we need to want. If you're in here and you have screwed it up, it is never too late. I have so much faith. I've had hundreds and hundreds of people come into my office and tell me the most atrocious stories you've ever heard about the things they've done. And I've seen God transform people and make them into wonderful instruments of God. I've seen him do crazy things with the most jacked up, messed up, dysfunctional people you can imagine. It, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I had, I had dinner with three convicts a couple of weeks ago who come to this church. They all did quite a bit of time in jail, and I sat there and ate dinner with these guys. They made me dinner. It was awesome, too. And we're sitting there eating dinner, and I'm looking at these three guys who had made some pretty monumental mistakes. And God has saved them and redeemed them and they come to church every week and they all have good jobs and they pay their bills and they're talking about all this money they're going to blow on like crazy computers and stuff. And I'm like, you guys make more than me. That's crazy. All this stuff that's going on. And I was so proud of these guys. And I'm like, man, God can do something with anyone. Anyone. He uses a fool like me and he uses fools like you. 
to advance his kingdom. If you bow your heads with me, I want to pray with you. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you're in this room and you feel like you have squandered life, I want to tell you that's a lie and it's not from God. Right now, if we believe that we have one shot, the moment that we're in right now, you're in the middle of your shot. Right now, you can give yourself to Christ. You can ask God to forgive you. He can restore you. He can pick you up and he can do great things with you. If there are people in this room who are struggling with your faith, up here to my left, there are people that can pray with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll help you with your faith, okay? They'll pray with you. Those of you in this room who are Christians, you've repented for your sins, you've, you've asked God to help you, you, you have a relationship with the Lord, but maybe you've grown apathetic. Maybe you've grown lazy. Maybe you've grown complacent. Maybe you've grown way too comfortable. Maybe you forgot to dream. Maybe you forgot to give him more of your time. Maybe you've just let life interrupt you too long. There's communion on the right and left. It's welcome to anyone who has asked God to forgive them their sins. It's, it's a representation of the body, of blood, body and blood of Jesus. And what I want you to remember if you take communion today is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again and the Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead fills up the believer and it gives us the ability to live life in a way that pleases God. Father, I love you, Lord. For everyone in this room, God, Lord, I just pray that you light a fire in us, Lord. I pray, God, that this isn't a, a lesson that makes people feel guilty or makes people feel condemned, but I pray, God, that it's a lesson that sparks something in them, God. Lord, that lights them up, Jesus, that, that wakes us up. Father, Lord, let us lead our children well. Let us lead our marriages well. Let us lead the next generation well. God, let us be humble. Let us seek your face. Lord, let us do your work. Not for our glory, God, but so you can be glorified. We love you, Jesus, and we lift you up and we praise you, God. All the honor and all the glory be to you, Lord, forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much.